0: From KIOS in Omaha, and Exarbon Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, author and Afro-bluegrass musician Pascal Bocaire discusses his work studying the migration of music from Africa across the world, including an instrument you probably don't associate with African music, the banjo.
1: And I realize that America's oldest musical instrument is a, the instrument from my country. It's a banjo. There is a banjo in America before there's a piano. So I started thinking about the music and thinking about the, the journey of this population and even looking at what was it that I knew that I could contribute culturally.
0: Bocaire's new album, American Trails, came out in 2019. His book, From Timbuktu to the Mississippi Delta, is available wherever you get books. Stick around for the conversation right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with Pascal Bocaire, musician, author, and professor. Bocaire's music and research aim to explain the human relationship with rhythms and instruments. His book, From Timbuktu to the Mississippi Delta, How West African Standards of Aesthetics Have Shaped the Music of the Delta Blues, profiles the evolution of sounds across the globe from African origins, including one I certainly didn't associate with Africa the banjo. The banjo is what I typically think of when I think of country music or folk music, right? Which kind of brings me to the next point, which is, Bocaire is not from the Midwest. In fact, he grew up in Africa. But his theories on the way culture in the center of countries create a specific sound has some interesting implications for us here in Nebraska. He's thought about the Midwest, or the center of the country as he calls it, and I'm excited to share what he thought about with you. You can check out Pascal Bocaire's music and his new album, American Trails, and you can get his book wherever you get your books. Here is our conversation.
1: I'm I'm ready for your minefield. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, so you've done
0: a lot of stuff. I mean, you've got music, you've got the book, uh, you are a doctor, you have, I mean, an instrument in your hands, so you had it a second ago. So, I mean, you seem like a busy guy. So, I mean, I'm just curious, uh, you know, uh, you seem like you're able to juggle a lot. You know, you're able to intellectualize, you're able to just... Be a musician, play music. How do you how do you manage your time generally?
1: Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, I don't really manage my time. Uh, my time manages me. <laughs> so what that means is that I uh, run from one one fire to another. You know, because uh, I do. I teach at the University of San Francisco in the Performing Arts and Social Justice Department. So with the COVID-19, we had to reframe completely and go from in-person to Zoom. I mean, Zoom has become my best friend. (laughs) Um, And then I have a jazz club uh, that got shut down by the governor of California. Uh, So we had to manage that process. Um, Then we had to uh, do the finals for the students at the college. And then we had to figure out What's next? So, um, I'm a musician. My uh, you know, I was supposed to be on the road. Uh, we uh, we everybody's sitting down, and uh, but uh, that gives me an opportunity uh, to actually think, which is really a, a luxury. And uh, also, I started uh, my third book, which is a, a book that is sort of a survey and overview of uh, the variety of uh, traditional music and contemporary music on the continent of Africa. So I'm looking at the west part, the north part, the eastern, the central, and the southern part. You know, I've always been fascinated by the center of the country. And I think you're almost at an equal, equidistant point between both coasts, more or minus uh, 100 miles, so... It's what, great to be with you.
0: What's what's the fascination that you have with us? Because most people just could not care less. You know, they hear they hear Nebraska and they immediately think, you know, ah, eh, not you know, nothing exciting happening there. And uh,
1: no, it's it's actually, I think, you know, um, when we try to study customs and we're looking at uh, social cultural influences, the center of the country is always the part where you are going to be as close to the original thoughts of, um, what makes the DNA of the nation. And that's true of every nation. Uh, the further you are away from the coast, you know, that have all these external influences, the, the closer you get to the, the sort of the, I hesitate to say the soul of the nation, but Essentially the the structure of thought and culture and what matters most is you know to, to, to the nation. You find that in the center of, of most nations. The center of the country, particularly for me as a musician, has always been uh, very important because it has retained some of the the cultural elements that may dissipate within the the reality of the coast dynamics. You
0: know? Well, it's kind of a, it's almost, it's a very, almost optimistic way of looking at it, I feel like, because most people would just say, you know, we're just 15 years behind or 50 or a hundred years behind, you know, some parts of the country. But to you, it's, it's retaining something that's worthwhile. And I'm curious, I mean, as a, from a music perspective, I mean, what does that mean? So like, how is music, I mean, there's more of what, like an interest in sort of country type music that I, I perceive I'm not, you know, is into the musical scene, Uh, So, I I mean, you pick up on a lot more than I would. So, I mean, what what does that mean to you that uh, that's being retained in the middle of the country, but not so much in the coast?
1: The coast receive influences from the outside on a constant basis. Mm. So they have to react to that intellectually, musically. Uh, The center of the country is where an element of culture has crystallized. And in that crystallization process, you find... An authenticity that you wouldn't find necessarily on the coast, and so to me, the that's why the the Midwest of, of virtually every nation, the, the the center of the nations, uh, are very um, true to um, to the essence of that of of the country. Yeah, you know, there's always a a conversation about. Uh, is this uh, fifteen years behind or fifty years behind I, I don't think that really matters. Uh, I think really what matters is that it, the center allows you to retain for a significant part of, significant period of time the authenticity of the culture of a, of a country, including both its frictions and its hopes and its aspirations. And when you talk about country music, you know, for me, as a musician, particularly as a musician who comes from West Africa, uh, the country music just means the authentic music of the country. You know, it, 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 nothing else. And so that's why, uh, as a West African, uh, I'm perfectly at ease with that um with the musical experience, of the American, um, the American journey, which is expressed through the music. You know, I find in country music, all the elements, of authentic African music, all the elements of a social cultural experience, that has, that the music has more or less shaped to reflect the authenticity of that experience. And so, I'm, you know, for me, w- when I listen to the music of the Delta, whether it's, you know, uh, Johnny Cash singing it, uh, because, you know, a lot of people have forgotten that um, a lot of this music was taught to 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 uh, European Americans by African American musicians, you know uh, most people because culture is difficult to teach, and we have a certain amount. Of, we only have a short amount of time. We tend to forget the dem- the way in which the demographics of the nation were constructed. Africans from West Africa, arrived in the southern plantations as early as 1550. That's before the end of the 16th century. And they, in certain counties in the south, there's a majority population, sometimes four to one. These populations keep come; they come every day, every week, every month, every year, until 1888. That's a long time. So when you move millions, literally, of people from one region of Africa, because 99% of African Americans are from the west part of the continent. They're not from the north, they're not from the east, they're not from the south, they're from the west. They have music in common, they have musical instruments in common. They have religious thoughts. They have foods, the foods of the South, New Orleans. If we were to take all the elements of African foods out of New Orleans, New Orleans would collapse tomorrow. There is no rice in North America before West Africans. They bring that to the Carolinas. And in the 18th century, that becomes the dominant economic engine of this idea of America as a nation. So, Black Eyed West Africa. Gombo, West Africa. Raps, West Africa. I mean, I I can just go on and on. So, these populations are in America, in North America, very, very early, in large numbers. And naturally, because of the, the nature of the numbers, they start setting up the foundations of a new culture. When we look at the immigration process, which is what's missing from a lot of the conversation, whether it's uh, for historical purposes or for uh, political purposes, the, the big push from European demographics comes, you know, between 1760 and 1840. And then there's another push at the, ter- at the end of the, ni- the, the 18th century, until 1920. But these population from the British Isles, which are important to our conversation today, come, you know, from England, from uh, Scotland, from Ireland. They move into the Appalachian, into Kentucky, into Tennessee. They find on the banks of the Tennessee River, these African populations have been there for centuries playing this instrument that I have right here, which is which is called Dungoni in Malenke, which is the language we speak in in, in, in West Africa, which is today the American banjo. And that instrument is fundamentally important because it articulates how the music of this nation is now going to move forward. So when I hear country music, I don't rhythmically, uh, from a harmonic standpoint, you know, these what, what classical music is called the blue notes because they didn't exist in classical music. The, these notes that are so important to the character of the music, so much so that it's called the blues. That comes out of the largest community of West Africans in the United States, in the Mississippi Delta. They played that instrument, that banjo, that comes from that. So if you think about it chronologically, you realize that it makes sense. When these Irish populations move into, te- the, into Tennessee and they find the African population playing the banjo, well, what happens? They integrate these colors, the instrument, into their own Celtic heritage to create something that's authentically American, which is, which is what we call bluegrass. So, so John, Johnny Cash, you know, and, and then I'll be quiet for a minute. <laughs> Johnny Cash was taught by an African-American musician called Gus Cannon, uh, the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, by an, a, a great musician by the name of Arnold Schultz, African-American. I mean, so you have a history, Epi Carter, the great patriarch of the Carter family, so important to, to the foundation of country music. Rufus Payne, um, Leslie Whittle, all these guys. African-American, blues musician, blues players. Blues and country music, same thing.
0: If you're just joining us today, I'm talking with Pascal Bocaire, musician and author of the book From Timbuktu to the Mississippi Delta, How West African Standards of Aesthetics Have Shaped the Music of the Delta Blues. I'm curious just about your personal story. So when you were growing up, uh, did you have a moment when you fell in love with music like that? Or is it just something where you grew up uh, maybe in a household where there was a lot of music. What was your personal relationship as far as that goes? Oh,
1: you know, my take on this is that I was a victim of um, my journey in music because I we haven't done enough studies um, in Trying to deepen our knowledge of what happens to the brain of an unborn when he's subjected to music 24-7 and particularly particular styles of music. So my 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 belief, because you know, I jazz music was played in my household. Uh, before I was even conceived so it was part of my sonic environment Mm -hmm. I didn't like it you know I like James Brown because there was a beat and uh, it was clear you knew you know there was a lot of baby baby I could relate to that but the jazz thing was too intellectual it was I understood the groove of it but there were so many things that the brain needs to get accustomed to in order to appreciate it that I didn't have that then. So I do believe that because my parents liked music so much that I was conditioned. So when I came out, you know, if you, if you, if you grew up in Africa, you know, I was born in Paris, but very early my parents moved back to Mali. Um, if you grew up in Africa, you hear these drum circles you know almost three or four times a week and that conditions you so if you think about you know the 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 unborns who are hearing this well when they come out man they come out swinging because that has become part of them you know so so i believe i believe in that so because my journey is very unusual, I mean, you know, there's no reason why I would leave West Africa to become uh, to to teach jazz in, in, in the United States. But that was my journey, and I always believed that I was conditioned because of that. Uh, nobody asked me what kind of music I'd like to hear. And therefore, uh, jazz became my, uh, what I wanted to understand. In the process of doing that, I realized... That America as a nation was so complex that it was the reason why its music was also complex. Because American music is one of the most complex music that you can find on the face of the planet. I don't mean by that the most difficult to appreciate, but I mean the one of the most complex in the sense of the superimposition of aesthetics of populations over time. You know? So as a musician, I started listening to the music. And you know, unlike the books, the music doesn't lie. When you hear a flat 7 in a chord, In classical music, you know that this is a classical musician who's heard the blues. Ravel, the famous French composer, when he heard the music of African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century, ragtime in particular, ragtime pieces, he started introducing some of these harmonic systems into his own classical background. That's an amazing thing. So the music doesn't lie. So the more I listen to American music, the more I realize, especially in the blues, I was like, wow, this is the tradition of West African traditional music, not contemporary music, but traditional music. So if you play that instrument, the the Ancestor of the Banjo, it makes sense that these African populations who left West Africa would recreate with some changes on the margin, but but authentic in its center, which is, I go go back to this this conversation about the center, retain the authenticity of their essence musically. And so when you hear the, the American blues, you hear West African traditional music. So as a jazz musician, I could connect... American music very easily because I heard these tonalities in West African traditional music before I had heard of the blues.
0: Where Where did the impulse, though, to, I mean, to understand it that deeply and that intellectualize, to intellectualize it like that? I mean, because some people would want to understand why it works or understand it just on the level of how it impacts them when they hear it. But, I mean, you're adding this other element to that. So, I mean, what was your journey as far as that goes?
1: So the intellectualization process came from the fact that, you know, um, again, um, my grandmother was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. My father was not a teacher. He was a businessman, but he was very... Intellectually savvy and interested. And so, two things created that, those question marks. First, coming into the United States and having to deal with racism, forced me into looking at the contributions of people who looked like me to the history of this nation. So I took it where I knew it, through the music. And I realized that America's oldest musical instrument is the instrument for my country. It's a banjo. There is a banjo in America before there's a piano. And so, so I started thinking about the music and thinking about the the journey of this population and even looking at what was it that I knew that I could contribute culturally to this story. I, you know, originally I came to the U.S., I wanted to be a great jazz guitar player. I didn't have uh, great ambitions, you know. I, I wanted to be good enough so that I could be in Las Vegas in one of the big bands, you know. Uh, the highlight would have been to be in the big band playing for Sammy Davis or Frank Sinatra and Mary the Cocktail Waitress. That was it. But when I started looking at this art form that we call jazz, and I realized the complexities of this music and how this music had lifted this nation, namely the USA, to the status of a cultural superpower, I said to myself, man, this is a people's contribution that really has never been identified, codified, and academically taught. You know, so I I was looking around because the first jazz festivals were in Europe. They were not in America. Jazz was born here in the United States. It is European scholars. Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, all these intellectuals, who told white Americans, stop playing classical music. You have an art form. You need to go on the other side of the tracks because we Europeans, we created the trumpet. Americans didn't create the trumpet. But when Armstrong or King Oliver played the trumpet, that becomes a standard of reference now, even for us Europeans who created the instrument. And European scholars started making all these correlation. They were like, we invented the piano, but after you hear Art Tatum and all the masters of the Harlem Renaissance, and you hear this music called ragtime. Ragtime, by the way which is nothing but the syncopation of the banjo. You know how in rock and roll or in blues, it goes like, Mm -hmm. this is what African-Americans are going to replicate on the left hand of the piano to create a brand new style that we call ragtime. But when European scholars who are masters of classical music heard that, they stopped playing their classical music of Wagner and even Stravinsky started playing ragtime music. And I was telling you Ravel started to introduce elements of blues harmonies into classical music. That's in the 20s. In the 40s, the British kids from London forgot the the classical music of of England, the music of Handel. They said, oh, forget this. We're going to go and learn the music of the Delta. And you listen to Be- from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones, from Muddy Waters and and um, oh, that other giant um, whose was name escapes me. But but that whole group, European scholars and then European kids started looking at the music coming from this side of the Atlantic and saying, "We want to do this. There is something about this music that speaks to us." and Naturally, as a musician, I started looking at that. If you listen to the, if you're interested in the blues, you listen to Muddy Waters, you listen to Robert Johnson, you listen listen to, to Howling Wolf, you listen to Sunhouse. You're like, whoa, you know. You listen to Johnny Hooker. You just, you say, you're hearing things of Africa. These people may have left Africa, but Africa's never left them. And then you listen to the music of, the young european american musicians or the young british musicians who go back who go to the the masters of, of of this school of music and you realize wow these guys are studying muddy waters led zeppelin studied these masters they they talk about it the rolling stone the same chuck berry they studied all these guys and you're like, well, wait a minute. There is an enormous wealth of culture and knowledge in this country. One of the most advanced British band called Pink Floyd was such a cult that the name of that band is a composant of the name of two giants of the of the blues music of the of the Delta, Pink. Anderson and Floyd Council, Pink Floyd. You were only part of their community of musicians if you knew where the name came from. That's how deep these kids were into the music. So I realized that there's a lot of things that musicians know, but they don't write books. And being a jazz musician, it was always like, you know, well, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're a jazz musician. Uh, man, you, you can't ask for any girls in marriage to her parents when you're a jazz musician. You know what I mean? Nobody wants that in their household. Now, if you're Frank Sinatra, that's different. But, you know, by and large, that's not a profession. Right? And yet, that's one of the hardest art form to express properly. And so, I said to myself, you need to go back to school and get some degrees. Because this is a world where your opinions don't really matter, unless you've gone through their school system, and earned the highest of their academic degrees. So I have a doctorate which means that I've been brainwashed properly it also means that I know the method because ultimately that's what it boils down to and once I understood the method, the academic method of telling a story, then I wove that into my own African style of storytelling which is long as you can tell but there's also an element of method meaning that you con- you learn to connect the dots and so I said I need to become a doctor so that I can write this story in a way that's cohesive, in a way that makes sense, but more importantly, to fill a gap. Because when I was teaching jazz, all the jazz books talk about this art form being born in New Orleans, which is not completely false. 1865 moving forward. Well, what happens between 1550 and 1865? Well, what happens is that that's actually the most important part, because that's a building of the foundation of an American thought with respect to culture and expression of culture. I'm talking
0: today with Pascal Bocar, whose new album American Trails came out in 2019. He also has a book out called From Timbuktu to the Mississippi Delta how West African standards of aesthetics have shaped the music of the Delta blues. Stick around for the rest of the conversation right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening, all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like Pop Culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. Today my guest is Pascal Bocar, musician, author, and professor. His new album, American Trails, came out in 2019, and he also has a book out called From Timbuktu to the Mississippi Delta, How West African Standards of Aesthetics Have Shaped the Music of the Delta Blues. Here's a bit of his song, I Can Tell, from the new album. And here is the rest of our conversation. Uh, There's one thing that you said that I do want to press upon a little bit more. You say, you know, they may have left Africa, but Africa didn't leave them. Or you said something along those lines. So, I mean, is there something, I don't know, instinctual? Is there something neurological? What is it about this music that, that explains how it transcends so many cultures or that so many people across the world continue to resonate or the music resonates when they hear it?
1: Oh, that's a complex question, and I don't think we have enough time. But let me try to summarize my answer this way. Okay. Music is an expression of cultural power, which is why kings and always want to be surrounded by the best musicians or presidents. They get those guys around to their political rallies. Why? Because musicians connect with the people. Musicians express the essence of the people. But they're also, in the process of expressing that, they're expressing also the genius of a culture. Music being an expression of cultural power, that essence, that human experience, art is the exacerbation of one's cultural sensibility in the case of American music, and particularly in the case of African-American music, as a people who was taken away from Africa, who, was, who found itself in a different land, dealing with different names, being assigned different language, the thing that their art and their music became the, the element that had the deepest resonance with their socio-cultural experience as Africans. That pain and experience, which is expressed in the blues, is something that all humans, regardless of their race, experience just through the fact that humans are born But they hear in that music, of the blues in particular, a strident element that combines both pain, but hope. That's what you hear in the blues. It's not just pain, there's also a joy. The crystallization of these two elements, have become a bonding element because you can play the blues in Japan and they react to it. You can, I go to Scandinavia to, to, to do festivals. They react to it. So there is something in that music because music is an expression of the depth of the human soul. And people relate to that. You don't have to necessarily understand it to feel it. You see, understanding is a function of. You know, do you have the brain power to sort of... No, no. Music is a series of sound wave vibrations. They can... Those sound wave vibrations can speak to you without you having to necessarily have the vocabulary to express what it is that you're feeling. And, of course, with... The world of emotions is a world for which... We, we still gathering vocabulary for. Our vocabulary doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not even close to understanding, or to be able to express, the realm of human emotions. But music, is able to tap into that part, of our subconscious, as well as our conscious. In ways that very often the world gets in the way, that's why, some of the best musicians in the world are blind. Because vision is great. And it's a plus. But it's also an obstacle to a deeper knowledge. I, I tell my musicians, my, my, my students, you're only concerned about race, when you look at racism, because you can see. If tomorrow you, you can no longer see, you are living in a completely different world where the only thing that's going to matter is how someone makes you feel and that's what music does it, it you listen to if you if you're if you're a trumpet player and you know let's say you you're from Bavaria in the middle of Germany the center of Germany authentic germany and, and you play the trumpet and you hear Louis Armstrong and you play the trumpet, and you hear his trumpet, you're like, wow, this is how I want to sound. You're not going to try to sound like this because it's black. You're going to try to sound like this because that's the best trumpet sound you've ever heard. And that's what's so important. And that's why music has a way to, to bridge the intellectual gaps, the political gaps, all that nonsense that societies have to deal with within the realm of, Trying to make a living and trying to pay your bills on a daily basis. You
0: see, I do well. Yeah, well I'm able to understand the concept of what you're saying, but at the same time, it's still to me uh, there seems like just this magical process when you go from trying to distill these complicated emotions into something that's so accessible for you know people all over the world, and I I guess. I'm not asking you necessarily to try to explain it to me because yeah, we probably don't have enough time for it to really work, but i I am curious for you uh to go from sort of you know the the experience without the vocabulary of listening to music into reacting to it to having this deep understanding, does it ever get difficult for you to still appreciate some of it? I mean, just knowing how it all gets put together, knowing what it does, knowing the magic you know behind you knowing the the math behind the magic, let's say. Uh, how has that impacted your relationship with music?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, that that's actually a great question because I there was a time in my life where I listened to a lot of music and I got to a point where I OD'd, literally. Because my brain started to become a computer and say, oh, this is from there, this is from that, this is from this, this is synthesized, this way, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. To the point where, I, now, I'm in the process of digesting. So I don't spend as much time listening. And when I listen to music, sometimes it's difficult for me to to really appreciate it. Uh, I've lost some of that innocence, in a way. Uh, but I've gained a different understanding and, a, and a, a different appreciation for how it's made. So that part remains vital to... As a composer, for example, or just as a as a jazz musician, or when I make, when when I'm improvising, you know, um, but it it certainly has complicated my relationship with music, no doubt. Um, and but because it has complicated my relationship to music, hasn't? I have not lost my awe. To music, because it's like a scientist, you know. Um, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more I listen to music, the more I realize that it's coming from a source that is literally a magical part of the expression of a higher being from which we are just ambassadors and mediocre at that. I don't know if if, if I'm making
0: sense. <laughs> I, I think I understand what you're trying to say, but I mean, it's it's got to be difficult. Uh, I mean, it's got to be great for teaching, for writing books, but whether it's appreciation of music or even writing music, I just I imagine that by losing some of that innocence, it's still. I don't know if it I don't know if it makes it so it's you know I'm sure you don't regret figuring that out, but to some extent there's gotta be some nostalgia for the innocent still,
1: right? No, because my awe in the the world of creating music has not diminished. Mm. It has been it has increased waves of knowledge. And it has made me appreciate even more, the concept of creativity, and, and where it comes from. Because human creativity comes from a, from a very sacred place. It really does. Um, writing a song that everybody sings, there's a magic in that. There is a, that, that connects us to the power of the cosmos. Some call it God, some call it other, other things. But it connects us as spirits. Because what is music? I mean, it's, a man, it's the manipulation of sound wave vibrations. That's what it is. In a way that connects us. And that's a magical power. So I, the more I know about it, the more I'm puzzled and in awe of that magic. So no, my innocence has not changed. What has changed is my tolerance for bad notes. You know, (laughs) because when I teach, you know, in my jazz band, sometimes I'm like, oh God, you know, I'm going to hear all these bad notes for about an hour and a half. But that is balanced by getting my students to avoid these bad notes. And that's the process of creating higher aesthetics, and that's also magical. When you hear a human being who plays better and better and better over time, you realize that you're part of something great, you know. And so that that helps.
0: When you're performing music now, whether it's in imp- whether you're improvising, whether you're writing, I mean, how conscious are you of the traditions you're drawing from, or, you know, the magical powers you're aspiring to, uh, you know, invoke, uh, and how much of it is just sort of this playing and letting it take over in the
1: moment? Uh, well, th- there was always, you know, as a band leader, there are the mechanics of the band, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that, okay, here's a song, here's how it's written, this is what we need to do, we need to rehearse it, and then you have to pick the musicians who best ex- can express what you're trying to convey, because clearly when you write a piece of music, the, the vocabulary is not satisfying. We don't have what it takes to explain what how we want a piece of music to be written. We can just, uh, you know, it's written notes are sketch. And uh, so... And you don't want to write too much because you want to let other people's expression to also merge with that energy, you know. Uh, and then you have to rehearse the band, and uh, and then you go on stage, and the click that happens when the band hits together, and the reaction of the audience. That's the magic. That, there is no amount of intellectual knowledge or Cartesian thinking or that can explain that part of the magic. The music doesn't have to be complicated to create that, that moment, that space. You know, simplicity is a refinement of complexity. You know, often, you know, and, you know, trained musicians, we, we tend to like to do compli- complicated things because that satisfies, a, you know, a part of our brains. And sometimes musicians play certain styles so they look down on others who play styles that may not be as um, complex intellectually. But, but I tell you, it doesn't matter how complex you can play. You can play very complex and not touch anybody. And somebody can play something really simple and really connect with people. The magic of the art is in the connection. Now, it is true that sometimes you play, you have musicians who play great art, and we have to we have to rise up to that, you know. Uh, And I'm thinking about jazz, for example. I mean, when when the the era of the bebop musicians, they were so ahead, you know, uh, coming out of the swing bands, you know, the Charlie Parker, the Dizzy Gillespie, and the 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 monks and those guys were thinkers, and they were so ahead that it took literally, you know, twenty five years, thirty years for the audiences to start hearing what they were doing. So there's always that part. But one of the reasons why this instrument is magical again, to go back to the banjo, is because the banjo that's the instrument of the people of West Africa. It's simple. It has three, four, four uh, strings. It's easy to tune. it's it's fairly easy to play. In West Africa, that's the instrument of the people. There is an instrument which belongs to the royalty, and it's called the kora, K-O-R-A. That instrument has 21 strings. That instrument is not the instrument of the people. You have to be extremely intellectual to be able to tune it, to be able to make it, to be able to, to play the hymns in it. But that instrument, the magic of that instrument is, it allowed these African population, who came from various parts of West Africa, didn't necessarily speak the same language, but had the same instrument. Meaning that that instrument as a vector, allowed them to reconnect their West African aesthetics, sensibilities into this new world that we call the United States, And fashioned out of that, a music that has been leading uh, the world for the you know since the beginning of the twentieth century. You know, I mean, I I was on the Fuji Channel, beaming out of Tokyo, and I was listening to young Japanese musicians who were playing rock and roll and R and B. I mean, that's the music of Chuck Berry and Richard. You know, (laughs) so the connection. And again, which is the reason why I go back to music is an expression of cultural power, but it's also the salvation of the essence of the soul of a nation, you know, and that's why it's so important to people, and that's why music speaks beyond races, you know.
0: And, and this is something you're exploring in your new book too, right? You're continuing down this line of...
1: The new book that I'm writing is simply trying to provide an academic um, document to talk about the musics of Africa and have it stored in one place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How big has as big as the continent of Africa is, and we've had many scholars that it ha- we don't have a book on African music. We don't. So somebody has to write it. But I'm taking my time. You, <laughs> know, I, I, you know, I came here, I came to this country to play music. And then I got saddled with all these things, having to explain the music, having to explain the social, cultural and political elements of the music. It came to me. I didn't choose it. You know, I was like, really, do I want to do this or do I want to practice? I really wanted to practice. But then I had to teach. So, you know, so I, I had to connect all these dots, but that's not really what I wanted to do.
0: But the, the pandemic's got to be a pretty good time for writing, though, right? Yeah, you, know, you got some, some downtime that you wouldn't, you know, you would be performing in, but now you're not.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the pandemic, uh, you also have to be careful. You know, I, I ate two pound cakes in a week. You know, there are a lot of elements that are distracting, sure. you know, in ways that you would not have fathomed. So I, I, I don't know. I, I can't wait for it to be over, to tell you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it did give us some downtime yeah unfortunately yeah. yeah
0: well so where is a good place people can go to find uh you know eventually when you finish this book and then to buy all your previous books or to find your music where should people be heading
1: so the the book on um which is called from book two to the mississippi delta the publisher is cognella c-o-g-n-e-l-l-a dot com that's a uh, that's a branch of university reader. That's an academic publisher, mm. so they can find it there. Um, and um, otherwise, for for my music and so forth, uh, they can just go on my on my website, which is Afro Bluegrass Pascal Boca, with a K.com And the name of my band is is Afro, Pascal Boca Afro Bluegrass Afro because of this instrument. Blue because it's it created the blues and grass because it's a it's a a combination of grass bluegrass and jazz because we improvise and we're using the the language of jazz in our improvisation mainly bebop so Alpha bluegrass and I think that's you know it makes sense for the music of the nation.
0: Pascal Bocair's new album, American Trails, is available wherever you get music. You can also check out his book, From Timbuktu to the Mississippi Delta, How West African Standards of Aesthetics Have Shaped the Music of the Delta Blues. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukwitz. You can find our backlog of episodes wherever you get podcasts. Just search for Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Thank you for listening.